Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Going to be looking at verses 1 through 17 this morning. You can find it on page 927 there in the Pew Bibles. Now, we have been walking along with the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. And this mission has been far more difficult for Paul than the first. And that might be hard to believe because in the first missionary journey, he was stoned. But this one has been a little bit rougher on him. I mean, the, the whole thing didn't start out well because there's just this sharp dissension, this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas arose before they even left. And it led to their separation. It continued on in Galatia. As he made his way through there, Paul had all of these lofty goals, all of these great intentions to preach the gospel in Asia and Mysia and Bithynia, but it was the Holy Spirit himself who had different plans in mind. And so it didn't go according to Paul's thoughts, Paul's intentions at all. God said, no, you're going to go to Macedonia. Well, when he gets to Macedonia, an evil spirit tried to uh, force his hand there in Philippi, And when Paul cast it out, guess what happened? He lands in prison. Not what you expect. And as a result of this whole encounter, he was forced to leave that city before he could ever establish the church there. He was only there a very short amount of time. He went on from there to Thessalonica, but some Jews who were jealous uh, formed a mob against him. And when they couldn't find Paul, they actually dragged a bunch of new believers, Jason and these brothers, before the city authorities, right? These brand new believers having to stand trial for their faith because these people were hunting down Paul. And so Paul escaped from there. He went on to Berea. But then those jealous Jews from Thessalonica followed him there. And it was the same thing again. He had to leave once again before he could ever really establish the church. He was only in Thessalonica a very short time, not in Berea, very long at all. And so, again, he had to leave before he wanted to. This time he left by himself and went to Athens. And when he got there, again, all by his lonesome, his heart was, was grieved. It was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. He was jealous for the glory of Christ and for the glory of God and wanted to see these people uh, come to understand where their true hope could be found. But despite all of his passionate, continual, and eloquent speech anywhere and everywhere, whether it be in the synagogue or in the marketplace or even the Areopagus, these arrogant intellectuals in Athens wouldn't listen. And so after a few short weeks, Paul made his way in our passage this morning to the city of Corinth, a city that's known for its wealth, for its commerce, for its pride, and most specifically, its immorality. I mean, when you think of the word Corinth, you need to think of Las Vegas, New Orleans at Mardi Gras, that kind of thing. Just the idea of that is fairly overwhelming, that you're going to minister in that context. Now, friends, there were good things that happened along the way. I mean, this whole division of Paul and Barnabas led to Silas and Timothy joining in with him. We, we do see that, that uh, some people were converted, people like Lydia and the Philippian jailer and his household. We got to, to see the, the, Thessalonians, or the Thessalonians, their steadfastness. Uh, that despite being brand new believers, they, they stood firm in the faith. Or We were encouraged by the Bereans' diligence with regards to Scripture We saw the transformation of Dionysius and Damaris and and others there in Athens. But on the whole, this second missionary journey wasn't as fruitful as the first. And this oppression is beginning to weigh on Paul so that when he enters into Corinth, he would later tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, And I, when I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. This is the Apostle Paul, the bold, stalwart Apostle Paul. The guy 
who himself bore the very marks, the very stigmata, the scars of Christ upon his body, who through his afflictions filled up what is lacking in Christ's suffering for the sake of the church. That Paul with them in weakness and fear and much trembling. Have you ever felt that way as Christ's ambassador? <laughs> the idea of like of going on to, into your classroom or, or engaging with your coworkers in the workplace, you just feel humble and you feel lowly because you don't have the eloquence or the wisdom to reason with them from Scripture as to why they so desperately need Jesus. Or you think about your neighbor. It seems so hard to anything that is spiritual or that, that group of acquaintances that you have that they just seem so in love with the world that they, they just they appear to be beyond hope. And so the, the thought of standing for Christ and, and proclaiming Christ to them seems overwhelming. You want to bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, but you're so overwhelmed. You're just tired and weak. You're just trying to keep them alive as they bounce off the walls, let alone have family devotions. The opposition challenges the hardships, leave you trembling at the thought of taking Christ to those who are living in such abundance, such distraction, and such arrogance and immorality. Friends, is it not just at least a little bit comforting to know that the Apostle Paul felt the same way that you do? Being a disciple of Christ who makes disciples for Christ can be a lot harder than we think it should be. But through all the difficulty, the lowliness, the fear, the weakness, the trembling, even the tears, God is still working. The gospel is bearing fruit And through it all, the Lord gives us assurances of his continual presence, his unfailing protection, and his kind and gracious and saving providence. For I have many in this city. So what we're going to see this morning from Paul's time in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17, is that the hard work of sowing yields gospel fruit in the providence of God. The hard work of sowing yields gospel fruit in the providence of God. So let's read Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded that all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people." And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. 
But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge in these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. And the first half of verse 18 tells us that after this, Paul stayed many days longer. The hard work of sowing yields gospel fruit in the providence of God. I just want to look at that statement in three parts. And so first, the hard work of sowing. Guys, where did we get this idea that being a Christian would be easy? I mean, where did that where did that come from? Where do we get the idea that, that if you just come to Jesus, everything in your life will automatically be better than it was before? Where do we get the idea that if we were to just take a little bit of time out of our schedules, mostly full schedules, mostly full lives, and just shared Jesus with other people faithfully, that their lives would become better too? As if all you had to do was sprinkle a little Jesus on everything, and suddenly birds start singing Flowers start popping up out of the ground. Frowns get turned upside down. Where did we get that idea? I mean, is it, is it Charlton Heston's fault? I like to blame Charlton Heston, right? I mean, like, you know, is it, is it if you just do what you're supposed to do and you speak in a commanding voice, then, then plagues will fall upon your enemies and waters will part before you and you will be immune to any and every temptation. Is it Disney's fault because we've somehow developed a Cinderella concept of the gospel? Yes, Jesus promised life abundant. Yes, he promised us joy and hope and peace in believing. Yes, he would be our living water and our bread of life. Yes, he would welcome us into his forever kingdom. Yes, we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have this glorious inheritance in the saints. We have received the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us and seal us until that great day of his return. Those are absolutely true. But didn't he also say to us that if the world hates you, it's because they first hated me. Did he not say to his disciples that we must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him? Didn't Jesus say that that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, not, not truly hatred, but in comparison to Jesus, who is our first allegiance, they cannot compare that he cannot be his disciple. For whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Did Jesus not promise his disciples that they would be persecuted? that they would suffer trials, tribulations, afflictions, and hardships for the sake of his name. So again, where did we get this idea that being a Christian would be easy? Good? Yes. Worth it? Absolutely. But easy? Now, the joys and and the graces that we experience in the Christian faith far outweigh the cost, but make no mistake about it, there is a cost. Faithfulness to Christ does require hard work and sacrifice just as it did for Jesus. And as his disciples, as his followers, as his ambassadors, we have been given the privilege and the responsibility to imitate him. Was Jesus' life easy? Now, Paul understood this. And that's why we see him making tents when he first arrived at Corinth. 
Now we look at that and we're like, okay, that's pretty cool. You know, we, we actually, we have, we have ministries sur- surrounded, like that are centered on tent making, where you go and you do business as missions, or maybe you do bivocational work, where you kind of have two jobs, and you do that in order to provide for your family, to kind of get you entrance into new places, to make contacts, uh, to legitimize your presence there in the community, and to preach the gospel free of charge. And that's cool. We like that, but you understand that that. Paul was doing all that, but he was really making tents. And this was not something that people found glorious. Now, you you might look at that and say, well, you know, good man, willing to work with his hands. And and that's absolutely true. There's something very good about productive physical labor. And and quite honestly, I could just assure you that in the midst of the frustrations of ministry and wondering if you're ever making a difference at all, there's something very, very good about physical labor and to be able to do something and know that it's done and check it off the list, even if it's as simple as shoveling the snow this morning. But Paul did not have to be a tent maker. 1 Corinthians 9, he tells us that that those who are leaders within the church, they deserve their wages, right? Peter and others, they were making a living off of the gospel that they proclaimed. And that's okay, that's fine. But Paul chose not to take part in that. He, he chose instead not to employ that right. He would rather not be a burden to those to whom he evangelized. Paul also wanted to more than likely distance himself from the false teachers of that day who would make their living as orators, who artfully told the people what they wanted to hear. You see, in that day, it was these rhetoricians who were the rock star celebrities of the day, right? If you wanted to be somebody, if you wanted to draw a crowd, if you wanted to fill amphitheaters, you were an orator, okay? I I guess that's because they they didn't have, you know, electric guitars or drums or smoke machines or lasers or lights or whatever, and so they had to do that. But you've got to ask yourself something. When you think about people who make their living speaking, put this in perspective, who do you think is better, the musician or the actor who, who lives in mansions, who, who has the paparazzi following them around all the time, or the one who has a side job waiting tables? Which one kind of just you think is better? Corinthians would have felt that same thing. I can listen to these guys over here, or I can go listen to that tent maker. But Paul had no aspirations for personal glory. That is not what Paul was about. And so to hit just even a little bit closer to home, which pastor do you think is better? The one with the big church, with the nice house and nice car, the one who writes books, or, or because his church is so big, they ask him to, to speak at a lot of conferences, or the pastor who works two jobs in order to provide for his family and to not be a burden to the church? How much stock do we really put in those things when we consider which church we think we want to be a part of? You see, the Corinthians would not have looked well upon this. They would have not have favored this. They would have thought lesser of Paul because of this. In fact, we know from 1 and 2 Corinthians that they struggled with this even after they received the gospel from Paul. Despite the fact that they came to faith through Paul and through his ministry, they still, you know, he, Paul's not a, a super apostle here. Paul is not this, this well-spoken-of guy, you know, like, yeah, you know, he, he writes well, but personally, face-to-face, he's not very influential. He's nothing like these well-spoken, winsome celebrity orators of the day, and it was hard for the Corinthians to handle it. And so, in addition to simply working hard to provide for his needs and to preach the gospel free of charge, Paul also 
wanted to separate himself from these false teaching orators and possibly to expose some of the vain idolatry in the hearts of these Corinthians. He would later say to them, you know why I do this? I do this because I'm willing to spend and to be spent for your souls. That's what mattered ultimately to Paul. It wasn't personal gain or aspirations. It was the glory of Christ and the good of other people's souls. Now, friends, I want you to keep in mind that Paul could hang with anyone, right? And we've seen it so far throughout the book of Acts. He can hang with the religious leaders, with government officials, with intellectuals, with the working class, with the rich, the poor, Jew and Gentile. But here we see that Paul is willing to do anything for the sake of the gospel. He's willing to take a lowly job, face any opposition, suffer any pain or loss, no matter what anyone thought, if only Christ might be glorified. That was his ambition. That was his goal. That was first priority in his life. But friends, that does not mean that it wasn't hard. And that he didn't have to pray to God for help. And it wasn't just that case for Paul. Because even in this passage, we see the same thing happening with Aquila and Priscilla. Verse 2 tells us that under Claudius' edict, they were forced to leave Rome because they were Jews. Right? They had to get out because they were Jews. And so here they are in Corinth making tents, leaving behind everything that they'd come to know, everything that they'd come to love and cherish. They built their life upon it. Now it's over. You see, the truth is no matter who you are, faithful ministry requires hard work and sacrifice, a willingness to put Christ first, whatever the cost, job, reputation, home, Comfort. And so while Paul was laboring hard, verse 4 tells us that he was still reasoning in the synagogues every Sabbath trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. It was only after Timothy and Silas returned from Macedonia that he was then able to give more of his attention to sowing the word, occupying himself with the word, testifying to the Jews that. The Christ was Jesus. And so whether he was making tents or not, his priority in all of it was to proclaim Christ. But friends, this hard work and sacrifice, it wasn't just physical. It was emotional and spiritual as well. You see, while... While he was proclaiming the glory of Christ for the good of their souls, verse 6 tells us that the Jews opposed him and reviled him. They slandered him. They, they defamed him. That word there, reviled, is literally the word blaspheme. That they cursed him and treated him shamefully. The, the NIV actually translates it that they became abusive. They were abusing Paul. Now, this is no real surprise to us because we've seen this before. But this verse also gives us new insights as to why he would labor so hard in the face of such opposition and reviling. Verse 6 tells us that he shook out his garments as a symbol of his innocence towards them and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, have you ever wondered to yourself why on earth he would say that? Like, why would you say your blood be upon your own heads? I'm innocent. Why would he declare that to them? Well, the answer is actually found in Ezekiel 33. There it says, Ezekiel says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If if I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. 
his blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes away any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked or turn to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Friends, those who have been given the gospel are accountable for the gospel. You did not receive the gospel just for yourself, but for others as well. And the more you have been called out as a disciple of Jesus Christ to to be a leader, to take on extra responsibilities as, as a teacher, as a shepherd, as a watchman, then you are more accountable for the truth that you proclaim. And so you need to be a faithful watchman. But friends, the reality is we've all, some degree or another, have been made watchmen. We all have a responsibility to the gospel to proclaim this truth faithfully to others. So Paul was willing to say what needed to be said as a faithful watchman, regardless of the opposition or reviling, and so should we. But friends, imagine how hard it would be to be attacked, to be dragged off before the courts and and the officials like Galileo there in verses 12 through 17. And to have to face that, to have to deal with that. Or, or worse yet, imagine what it would be like knowing that the gospel that you proclaim resulted in Jason and the brand new Christians there in Thessalonica being brought before the civil authorities and having to pay bail, even though they were innocent, even though they had done nothing wrong. Or even worse than that, Sosthenes was beaten because of the message that you proclaimed. You see, it's one thing to have to endure these things yourself for the sake of the gospel. It's another thing when your children in the faith have to experience those things. When they have to face that. Friends, without a firm conviction of the glory and the greatness and the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will not sacrifice, or do the hard work of gospel sowing. Unless we are truly and continually tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, our pride, our comfort, and our fear will get in the way. Laziness, indifference, unbelief, immorality, the deceitfulness of riches, will keep us from being faithful stewards of this gospel of grace. Friends, if we have a small view of Christ and a big view of ourselves, we will not share in suffering as a good soldier for Jesus Christ. We won't work hard. We won't sacrifice because we love other things more than we love Jesus. And so what keeps you from laboring as a faithful servant of Christ? What is it that prevents you from the hard work of sowing? Friends, no matter what we may endure, our labor is not in vain. You see, the hard work of sowing, second, yields gospel fruit. See, after Paul shakes the dust off of his garments in verse 6 and tells them that he's going to the Gentiles, we see in verse 7 
that God providentially provides. He left there and he went all the way out the door and turned to the right and took just a few steps to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. And so this guy's a Gentile, God-fearer, became a Christian. His house was right next to the synagogue. And so going to the Gentiles actually didn't require that Paul go very far at all. Like just out the door to the right, and there he was. God providentially provided this man's house as a base of operation for Paul's ministry, and providentially, it was right next to the synagogue. I love the irony of that right there. They kick him out, and so Titius says, well, he's come on over to my house. We'll just meet there. It's, he's, Paul's like, where is it? It's right next door. Okay, great. See you there in a few. Despite how hard it was, Paul's ministry was bearing fruit, was in the life of Titius Justice. And verse 8 tells us that one of the very first converts in Corinth was Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. Now, this man believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And so if the Jews were opposing and reviling Paul, this guy, you would have to think, would be one of the last guys that would possibly accept the gospel message. This guy is a committed follower of Judaism, right? I mean, he's, he's the ruler of the synagogue. That means he's the caretaker and the worship pastor. Could you imagine what that would be like for that guy to just say, no, you actually believe, and I'm going to go with Paul. He was actually one of the few guys that, that Paul baptized there in Corinth. He had a special place. But not only did he come to faith? Verse 8 tells us that many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Each of them acknowledged their need of Jesus. Not in terms of filling up what is already a mostly full life and just top that off with Jesus to, to make myself complete, but to recognize their desperate state. That though their hearts were full of idols, the one true God calls us all to repent and believe. They saw, they recognized the futility and the hopelessness of trying to live and to worship God on their own terms. And, and their only hope was in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so they turned from themselves, they turned from their former manner of life to follow Christ to reflect his character, to imitate his life, his work, his grace, his sacrifice with theirs because they had received an eternal inheritance in the glory of God through faith in him. And friends, that call is for every one of us as well. Just the same as you and me. You see, not only did these believers profess faith in Christ, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but they publicly identified themselves as followers of Christ. What do you think that would mean for them to publicly declare their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism? To declare Jesus as Lord is to declare that Caesar is not. Did they lose their place in the synagogue? Did it tarnish their reputation among the wealthy, prideful, and immoral Corinthians? I would imagine so. What do you think it meant for Titius Justice? I mean, think about that. We just kicked him out of the synagogue. Here, you're inviting him over to your house? What are you thinking? Think they kept him on the rolls and just kind of like came over for afternoon tea? What do you think that meant for Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue? You think he was able to keep his job after that? No. More than likely, Sosthenes was his replacement. And so what that meant for Crispus and for his whole household is maybe they needed to start making some tents on their, their own. What about Sosthenes? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, he's a believer who is with Paul at the time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. And so here, perhaps if he wasn't a Christian at this moment, I'm guessing that he was at least sympathetic to Christianity. So whether he's a, a Jew that's sympathetic to Christianity or a brand new believer himself, Sosthenes was beaten in verse 17. But by the time you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
we see that he didn't just say, you know what, forget it. <laughs> I'm done. I'm not, I'm not meddling in the affairs of Christianity anymore. That, that, I, that got me black-eyed and beat up. I, I'm never going there again. Instead, you see him ministering right alongside Paul. Friends, these were not empty professions. Their faith meant something. In fact, it meant everything. And they were willing to publicly identify themselves with Christ no matter what would happen. Ridicule, job loss, beatings and imprisonments. Though it would be hard, it was worth it because of the hope and new life that they had in Christ. But here's the thing, friends. If Paul was not willing to do the hard work of sowing, that if he was not willing to do the hard work that was necessary, that allowed gospel fruit to be born in his own life, it wouldn't have happened in them either. You see, they imitated him as he imitated Christ. Christ's life bore much gospel fruit. As Paul imitated Christ, his life bore much gospel fruit. And it resulted in gospel fruit in the lives of others. Friends, we have got to be careful that we don't peddle out a cheap, partial version of the gospel. It just says, as long as you say you profess to believe in Jesus, then everything else is fine. Live as you want, do as you please. Friends, God loves us with a love that surpasses all knowledge. Yes, God's grace abounds to the chiefest of sinners. Yes, there is life and hope and joy and peace and true soul satisfaction in Jesus that is beyond our ability to comprehend. But the free gift transforms our lives so that we give true and evident proof that we are followers of Christ. It changes us. These folks were testifying to the power and the wisdom and the glory of the good news of Jesus Christ with their lives. And so should it be with us. Not by our own resolve to to suck it up and to suffer for Jesus, but by the strength and the power and the transforming grace of God in our lives because the gospel is yielding fruit in us and through us to yield fruit in others. Even in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And so the hard work of sowing yields gospel fruit, third, in the providence of God. Verses 9 and 10 are the heart of this account of Paul's time in Corinth. Right? Luke, as a whole, doesn't spend a whole lot of time with Paul there, given the fact that he was there for a, a year and a half. But this is the central truth. This is the takeaway that you want to get from Paul's time in Corinth. And in it, God gives commands and God gives promises. While Paul, in weakness, fear, and much trembling, was in the midst of this wealthy, proud, and immoral city that just seemed so overwhelming, and more than likely he was ready to quit and to give up, we see, verse 9 says, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Friends, the single most often repeated command in all of Scripture, God gave here to Paul. Do not be afraid. Fear not. 
But friends, Paul was afraid. We are afraid. It's okay to admit that we're afraid. But where God gives the command, he does it not to be some kind of tyrant or or bully that kind of holds that carrot out there that's just beyond reach. He's not commanding us to do something that we cannot do. When God gives us the command, he also gives us what is necessary in order to do that. In order to not be afraid. Friends, this is a trust fall. You know what a trust fall is, right? Where you get a group of people there and you kind of turn around, you close your eyes, you know, you cross your arms and you fall back and you wait for them to catch you and you hope that they'll catch you and that's a display of your trust and you learn to trust them. God is saying, trust me. Do not be afraid. Trust me. I will catch you. I will uphold you. I will strengthen you and equip you to do what I have called you to do. You do not need to be afraid because I am with you. I am the one who is doing these things. If it were up to you, yeah, there's much to be terrified about. But not if God is the one who's working. God will supply for our every need. But friends, you have got to trust him. You have got to take God at his word. You've got to respond to the command that he gives you here. And that's why he commands us not to be afraid. And the first command is followed up with a second. Go on speaking and do not be silent. And let's face it, one of the biggest reasons why we don't share the gospel, why we don't speak of, of Jesus alongside our own selfishness or, or our own unbelief is the fact that we're afraid. We're afraid to tell others about Jesus. We're, we're afraid of being hurt. We're afraid of being ridiculed. We're afraid of rejection or disapproval or the inconvenience that comes along with sharing our faith with people. And so we're silent. But again... God gives the command because he's already given us all that we need in Christ Jesus. We do not have to worry about what we will say because the Holy Spirit will draw from the law of Christ that God has already written upon our hearts so that we might know what to say next. But again, we have to trust him. And with these commands, God gave Paul specific promises. He promised his presence, for I am with you. He promised his protection. No one will attack you to harm you. He promised his predestination, for I have many in this city who are my people. And because of those promises, in verse 11, we see that Paul stayed. Paul trusted God, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. And even in the course of verses 12 through 17, we see that God's promises prove true. Right? Paul was attacked, but he was not harmed by the Jews who brought him before the proconsul Galileo. But even without having to open his mouth to defend his cause, Galileo dismissed the whole thing as a Jewish dispute and kicked them all out. But friends, I hope you see this is evidence of God's continual presence and his protection. But there's even more than that because that whole event right there that was unplanned, obviously Paul did not decide for himself, you know what, I want to go talk to Galileo. That whole event, even though Galileo would not give him the time of day, not even let him open up his mouth, God used that to legitimize Christianity in the eyes of the Gentiles because they recognized, okay, according to Galileo, Christianity is of no threat to the Roman Empire. And so God's plan to have Paul appear before Galileo was bigger than he could imagine. Now, friends, God might not have given this specific vision to us, but the promises that he made here, 
he also makes in many, many other places of Scripture. Over and over again, God promises us that he will be with us, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that he will guide us with his righteous right hand, that he will lead us to glory. He might not promise us that no harm will come to us as we minister the gospel here in Champaign-Urbana or to the uttermost or anywhere in between. But he does promise that not a hair on our heads will be harmed outside of his good and sovereign purposes. As the famous missionary to Africa, David Livingston, once said, I am immortal till my work is accomplished. And he said that because he firmly believed that nothing bad would happen to him until God's work in him and through him and for him was done. Friends, all of the suffering that we might experience for our faith, all that suffering truly accomplishes in a believer is to prepare our hearts to meet with the Lord and to give evidence of the suffering of Christ to the church and to those who do not know Him. That's all that it accomplishes in us and for us. Because death has no victory. Death has no sting. Death has been defeated. Therefore, to depart and to be with Christ is far, far better. And though we don't know how many people the Lord has here, we do know that God has many people in this city. Many who still need to hear the gospel. Many disciples that need to be matured into Christ. And many laborers to send out into his harvest field. Now some people want to look at this passage with disdain, because if God is sovereign over salvation, then why would he command them to preach? Our preaching is only valid if we're not guaranteed that God has many in this city. If God is sovereign, then what's the point? Well, friends, this passage actually assures us of the exact opposite. That if God didn't have many in this city, then our preaching is useless. If God isn't sovereign to save through our proclamation, then what's the point? John Newton once said, if I was not fully confident in the sovereignty of God in salvation, then I would have no more hope in preaching to men than preaching to horses or cows. This promise actually gives us hope for our proclamation, because we know that it will not be in vain. When you engage with those students or with those coworkers, it is not in vain. When you gather together with your community group or with your LTG, when the word is proclaimed, it's not in vain. When you invest in your neighbors, When we gather here together on Sunday mornings to worship the Lord, when the word of God is central, when the gospel is being proclaimed, it is not in vain. It's never in vain. And it's not in vain because God has chosen to save many through our proclamation. God has chosen to use our proclamation as the very means of growing us into the image of Christ. He will not save them all, but he will save many. And this is the fuel of our hard work and sacrifice. Because we can be absolutely sure that none of it is in vain. The gospel will bear fruit because God is providentially working out his plan for the salvation of many, many souls. So when you enter into your workplace, you look at it, 43,000 students out there on campus, you go up and you start up a conversation with that neighbor. It's just as old and crotchety as you can imagine. 
there's hope. Friends, this promise sustained many missionaries across generations and throughout the world. This one. And I pray that it would sustain us as well. Because God is with us. He will protect us. And He will save. According to His kind and good providence. But friends, a promise can mean little if it is not trusted. And so do you trust Him? Will you take God at His word when He says that the hard work of sowing will yield gospel fruit in His providence? Are you being faithful to that call? Will you be faithful to that call? To work hard and to sacrifice because God is faithful and will accomplish all all of His purposes in all of His people. You, me, Christians throughout the world, and those who do not yet know Christ. The hard work of sowing will indeed yield gospel fruit in the providence of God. So let's pray with that confidence. Father, we do thank you for this word, for this good reminder to us that victory does not come by our own strength, by our own sense of courage, but often in weakness and in fear and in trembling. We thank you that, that despite our frailty, you are still at work. Your word is proving itself effective over and over again in many ways. And you promise that you will accomplish all your purposes to save every single one of your people in your own good and perfect timing and to do it through the foolishness and the weakness of people like us. I pray that that would be motivating. Pray that that would be motivating and encouraging for us when we, when we think about spending time in family devotions with our kids and we just wonder if they hear a word of it. Or when we engage with people from different backgrounds and, and they just look at the world in completely different fashion than we do. We pray for strength even among those who are opposing us and reviling us, making mockery of us because we know that you will accomplish your purposes and there are even people among them that will believe. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to take you at your word for your glory and for the joy of many, many souls because we know that you have many people in this city. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.